Welcome to the Plain Sight podcast hosted by Invisible. Invisible Technologies is a fascinating company. Uh, we essentially make complex business problems disappear. So we partner with you. We figure out what your operations are. We figure out what your processes are. We figure out what your team doesn't like to do. And we basically do that better, faster, cheaper. Uh, but this isn't specifically about what we do. It's also the philosophy behind why we do it. So this show really gets into what makes Invisible tick. Uh, who are the key players at Invisible? Who are the key players outside of Invisible who enjoy our work? Um, what are all the things that are going on inside of Invisible? What a podcast does, it allows you to find out things that you normally wouldn't be able to find out. So it's like a fireside chat that's basically decentralized and anybody can listen to it at all times. So we really invite you to uh, listen and subscribe if you really like these episodes. And as always, you can reach out to anybody on the Invisible team. Uh, our website is invisible.co uh, and we're happy to have you here. Welcome to the Plain Sight Podcast. My guest today is Andrew Berlinson. He is an actor, writer, and advanced AI data trainer at Invisible. So welcome to the show. Stuart, thanks for having me. The, the sheer brain power and eloquence of all of your guests so far is incredible, inspiring, a little bit intimidating. So I hope that I keep the quality up. That's I'm my sure challenge for myself. <laughs> uh, one of the key things I would love to talk to you is because it sounds like you're very creative on the on the acting and the writing front. Um, and I, I, I want to understand because a couple of weeks ago, we were trying to elicit the skills that it, that we need to hire for for advanced AI data trainers. And I was thinking, I, I took a small part in the project and I was thinking, oh, we've got to get the hard skills. we got to get all the hard skills. They got to be programmers and they got to know what RLHF is and what, you know, RAG is and all these different mm -hmm. like acronyms. And then everybody who actually knows what they're doing is like, no, no, you need, you just need creative people. Um, and, uh, is that accurate? Like what's the relationship between creativity and AI training? Well, it's definitely been helpful to have both. I have to say, because when I started doing the data training, uh, I said, it felt like I was making music on a spreadsheet. Like it's not exactly an interface that is super creative in and of itself in terms of that kind of tool, but, um, having the, the, the computer savvy people around having the tech people, having the coders around. It was like a real-time Wikipedia. So if I had a question, it was immediately answered and and there we go. So your learning curve has to be quick, but it was great to have both ends of it. Um, and then I think on the creative end of it, I think we've lent um, some degree of, of just sort of playfulness and confidence and in, in playing with the, the language model and, and the output and the input and keeping people inspired because it can get kind of like, a, it can become exhausting over time. Um, if you fall into a creative rut. And so that's where hopefully we come in is to say, well, try this or try that or, you know, and it's been a really cool exchange. Like it almost feels like a cultural exchange for me. And you're talking about the people that you're working with. Like, you know, if you run into a rut, you can basically ask somebody else on the team, like, how do I get through this? Absolutely. That's what I've seen. For me, there was visual cues that just looked like something I'd never seen before. I, I did not come from, from a tech background or a coding background whatsoever. And some of the tasks that I was presented had that look to it, had that that sort of language and rubric. And so just please give me the basics. And there it was for me, it yeah. was great. And then on the other end, it was like, um, like you said, hey, I, I really don't know where to go with this conversation or how to respond or listen to what I'm getting from the, from the bot. How would you respond in this way? 
And as a, a trained improviser, as a theater guy, as an actor, as a writer, it's like, well, you can imagine that you are playing this role as a user who needs this objective, which is like the acting 101 term, right? What's your objective in the scene? And I'm like, oh, yeah, right on. That, that seems to work. So it's, it, it's very, very cool in that way. It's so wild. And it, it, it gets to what I've been interviewing Francis with for many years now. Um, I started my other podcast, Crazy with the Wisdom, with the what is the relationship between stress and creativity? And I think it was back in 2018 when I when I interviewed Francis for the first time, um, and and he's the he's the now the president former CEO of of, of Invisible for our listeners, um, and uh, it was always just like the 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 as and this was even before Invisible got into AI, um, just talking about like human the human creativity angle isn't going away like that's that's gonna stay and and i do think you know a lot of people are saying ai algorithms they can't be creative i actually disagree with that i do think they that they are creative but i don't mm -hmm. think they're going to get to the most core aspect of creativity which is like intention and maybe divine inspiration and other i got a lightning in my background you know like it being struck by <laughs> lightning I, I don't think the ai is ever getting struck by lightning but i think people are getting struck by lightning for sure do you have any thoughts absolutely. on absolutely yeah, that's a great thought. And I completely agree with you, first of all. Um, so much to unpack there. Uh, in terms of creativity and stress, I, that's what I've lived for 25 years is as an actor, uh, I say that it feels a lot like we're a field goal kicker, that you are staying limber on the sidelines, you're staying focused, you're staying energized. And then when they need you to come in, you have to come in and you have to nail it. And that's the pressure. I mean, enormous amounts of pressure. I've worked on sets where there's a lot of money uh, on the line and the timing is tight and you've really just, you gotta stay loose in that way. And it does give you a, an, like a lightning bolt of clarity in that moment. That is a unique situation that I think probably athletes understand and, and you know, entrepreneurs understand when they're under the gun. Uh, so yeah, so that that to me is 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 very very much relevant to what we're doing with 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 AI data training. Um, and in regards to uh, so wait, what did you say? Where I lo I lost you there for a sec. Sure. So essentially, well, and I wanted to respond to something you said because we can we can take it out uh, go from here yeah. basically because uh, uh, you said under the gun when you go into a um an, a show or I'm sorry a, um when you go into an audition, uh, mm. you're basically, you are totally focused because you're basically like, this is your one shot to make it for that specific role. Um, and uh, then you said entrepreneur and definitely like, you know, there's the elevator pitch and that if you run into somebody, there's like a small amount of time that you have in order to get the message across and everything like that. And it reminds right. me of why I fell in love with uh, improv, comedy improv. Uh, back in 2019, um, which was totally destroyed by the pandemic. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't been back since. Uh, and uh, but I loved uh, comedy improv and that and I started the podcast before comedy improv and that comedy improv had like now I realize that this this kind of two way conversation, neither of us have a script like it's just kind of going with the flow uh, and finding out where the interesting paths to go and thinking on your feet. And so much of life is like that. And so much of spontaneity is like that. But I find that a lot of human beings, particularly in the tech world, and I'd be curious now that you've entered the tech world, a lot of human beings that I know inside of like Silicon Valley in San Francisco, they're like, oh, okay, well, we're programming the rob robots, we're using the robots. And so like the default kind of unconscious bias is to become more like a robot. 
um, <laughs> and, and to become more robotic in all their pro processes, more mechanical, all these different things. Cause we're, you know, we're, we're it's like, but it's the opposite. We actually got to do mm -hmm. the opposite because the ro there's no way we can win uh, on that playing field with robots. Do you have anything uh, to say about that? Yeah. I, it's funny because what I see as professional and robotic, I don't think are the same. And in, in my business, there absolutely has to be a sense of play. There has to be a sense of interplay. And I believe that that was really what business was for a long time. But I think with the advent of tech and Silicon Valley and its cultural spread, um, there's a sense that you have to be serious in order to be productive or you have to be, um, it has to have a concrete answer in order for it, to, for it to be measurable and have a demonstrable outcome. And I just don't think that that's necessarily the case. And I find that people at Invisible are very much on that vibe of saying, please keep your play, please, please keep your imagination alive, because that's where all, all the magic happens and all the unexpected gains will happen from that. And it also, like I said, it keeps you incredibly loose. And I think being loose helps you to stay focused. And ultimately that is to me, the, the best thing for productivity. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of a uh, philosopher, John, John Verbeke, who great, great um, YouTube series called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, where he goes back through uh, the last couple of thousand years of the Western tradition and under, and also part elements of the Eastern tradition as well, and goes through like, what is meditation? What is focus? What is meaning? And, and there's a particular word that he had that you reminded me of, because it's like, it's like focused attention, focused awareness, uh, uh, you know, that idea of focus, but then if you get too focused, you get stuck into a sort of attachment to whatever you're focusing on. So there's also this sense of like loose looseness and it mm. needs to go in between. And your, your, your consciousness is, is always doing this at, at all times, but like, uh, but as the artist and the philosopher and the humanists and all, all this different stuff that we talk a lot about invisible, like it seems to be a large part of that as well. And I'd I, I, I know from what I know about AI training, you guys are going in and you are having conversations with bots and, and, mm -hmm. and developing a conversation with a bot. And I imagine there's this creative writing aspect to it, but then there's this also sort of like, you, you, you guys do have deadlines, right? You do have to, to, to essentially like work a significant amount and like create this. Can you talk more about that and maybe how that focus plays into it? Oh, sure. Absolutely. I mean, it's the, the artist's total enemy is a deadline, right? And so it, that, that is, but it's also, it gives you a sandbox to play in. And if you don't have that sandbox, then, then you can really lose momentum. And so you just have to define what the sandbox is for you. And honestly, everything I've ever done has a deadline. I mean, when you're shooting on a set, if you go into overtime, that's just a producer's nightmare. You have a fiduciary responsibility to get your to get your take and so that we can move on and get the crew home that's kind of how i think about it it's like let me do my job so everybody else can do their job and we can all go home and, and give, give each other a high five and, and we're done and we've done our jobs um but yeah it's an interesting thing that that what you said i it reminds me of you reminded me of one of my improv teachers who used to say hang on tightly and let go lightly meaning you go into your scene you have a plan, you know, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a fishmonger in Seattle, and this is what the scene's going to be. And then your, your scene partner comes in and suddenly, nope, we're on a moon base and it's the year 2222. You're like, oh, well, well, I'm not a fishmonger anymore. So you let go of that so immediately. You just let go of your expectations and you, and you say, okay, how can I maybe take a kernel of what I had in mind and apply that to what's going to happen in real time now? And with AI data training, you have a prompt, you have an initial prompt. 
And it often helps, like I said, to have a role in mind. I am this kind of person. I'm an educator writing a, a grant. Uh, and I'm, I want to do this with the grant XYZ. But then the bot gives you a response that is either filled with hallucinations or something is just totally awry. And you have to let go immediately of what your expectations of what the conversation are going to be. So it 100% is a combination of creative writing and improvisation and tech. I mean, it's it to me, it is this slightly new art form uh, that I can see a lot of my friends who are writers really being into, <laughs> you know, this is unexpectedly fun. It feels like a word game uh, and you're being timed and you, you see it. So there's some pressure there for sure. And you know that the people above you, the managers are having their pressures from the client, which again is completely similar to a client at let's say a commercial passing their stress to the producer who passes it to the first assistant director who passes it to the director who passes it to the actor. But the actor is the one in front of the camera who's got to stay cool and has got to stay calm and poised and positive. And so the the operator for me on this level, the data trainer is the one who says, all right, we've got to stay in the pocket. I feel a little bit of stress coming from the management. They're doing really awesome in, in, in mitigating that stress, encouraging us to not burn out, encouraging us to keep going and have fun with each other and stay stay in it. But yeah, you've you've got to keep your poise either way. And that is if you if you're making art in a capitalist system, which most of us are. That is the trick that they don't really talk about in mm, art school is keeping yeah. your creativity in the midst of the fiduciary and academic uh, economic pressures around you, which are the reality of a career. And that's what I've seen. And it's been that that to me, the, the, the parallels between this and what I'm doing at Invisible have been astonishing to me, just totally unexpected. And we could talk about the future where you see the future as a sort of like outsider who's now inside tech. Uh, uh, mm. Uh, like where where this is going what, what are your thoughts on creativity what are your thoughts on um the disappearance of jobs i'd also like to ask whether mm. are, are you bringing in are you telling all your friends about invisible have any of them joined um is, is that actually happening or well it's touchy right now in hollywood because yes. of the strikes that yes. are happening right so yeah. when i tell my friends that i'm working with ai i have to be um an ambassador i think of what i see as a beautiful tool for the future. Like I, I come from a background of music as well. And I made music for a number of years and I started recording way back in high school on like a cassette four track and I loved it. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm doing what the Beatles did, but I'm doing it at home, you know, on a task cam with a cassette for, you know, hundred bucks. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And then GarageBand comes along mm -hmm. and, and loops come along. And I got, I got lapped at that point because I got busy doing acting and I got other jobs and I have other things going. So I can't sit down and learn all the gear and learn all that stuff. So when I saw AI come down the, pop, the pipeline with particularly Midjourney and, and ChatGPT and her, hearing the rumblings of what that could do and what that could mean for artists, I said, I have to get ahead of this. And I'm, I wanna learn this and not only learn it, but I wanna, I wanna take my curiosity about it and just go with it. And I think that has to be the way to go or else Hollywood's gonna be completely left behind the way that the music industry was caught flat-footed. Um, and so right now, getting back to your question, when I, when I talk to my friends, I tell them, mm. I have a writing job at a tech company mm. where I am essentially a linguistics tutor and I am, I am teaching this entity to be um, safer and more accurate and therefore more ethical. And people are like, oh, well, then and I always see their head sort of tilt in that way of, well, huh, when you put it that way, it doesn't sound like the evil robots are taking my job. And so that's been interesting. So I, 
I, I said, look, there, there are jobs here for linguistics majors and, and people that never thought this could be a thing. Just like with any disruptive technology, of course, it's going to take jobs, but it's going to create opportunities that people did not see coming. Um, and I've never felt, honestly, my English degree be so useful as it is right now. It's unbelievable. It's putting it every, so every dentist. Yeah. Every dentist who told my parents, oh, my God, he's an English major. What's he going to do with that? You know, it puts them all to shame now. <laughs> and uh, which is so wild because, yeah, like the English degree is traditionally one of the degrees that most people find useless. But again, like this, these weird, weird switches that happen with technology, because uh, it also caught I think it, mo it caught most people in Silicon Valley by surprise as well. Um, yeah. and, and Invisible itself is really an interesting company that I've been studying for a long time because it represents such a dynamic, such a different way of looking at problems than the traditional tech companies. So with mm -hmm. Web Web 2.0, uh, uh, there are companies like Facebook and Uber and all of these large companies. They all tried to basically hire as many engineers as possible so that they could automate everything out of existence. And so you mm -hmm. see that the you see that with happening with Facebook. Once once Facebook once all this once all of the kind of um, externalities of what Facebook made possible with with the kind of like disinformation with people cre creating mm -hmm. lies and also creating um, just not knowing the truth. Uh, and you see it that they had to then bring humans back into the loop uh, in mm -hmm. order to start to to get around the fact that they had automated all humans out of the loop. Um, and mm -hmm. so the same thing with Uber. Uber did a similar thing. Basically, they removing the 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 taxi cab medallions as the managers. Uh, of the taxi cab drivers and turned the the users into the managers by giving the five star rating and stuff like that. Um, mm. and, uh, and so what invisible represents is something really interesting, which is that no, like the humans are an integral part of the technology, you can't get rid of them, like, there is no technology without a human being in the loop, basically, and so brought them back in. And I think one of the most interesting things about that was that um, they didn't start out thinking about doing AI training. It was totally serendipitous that they that they 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 started ha handling the human side of the, the AI training because I think it goes back to what I was just saying of like that idea and technology. You want to automate it all out. You want to just get rid of the mm -hmm. humans. And Invisible brought the humans uh, has already always yeah. started with the humans. And now I think we're really going to see this in a way that a lot of people aren't expecting that like the human is integral not only to the AI training but also to the AI enablement side. Um, and like the, mm. the, how do we, how do we actually go into companies and help them enable AI? Um, and it's, I've been, I've been using chat GPT like crazy for my own job. And it's like, it goes back to the computer as well. The, the, a lot of people thought that the computer would do the same thing, but as you said, instead of getting, I mean, a lot of jobs, like the manual computation, those jobs disappeared, but it also mm -hmm. created a huge, huge amount of jobs that could never have been possible at all. Like, um, like the oh, yeah. fact what we're doing, we're at, you know, play, I'm <laughs> exactly. in play it's like that, that just wouldn't exist. This serendipity wouldn't be able to happen. Um, yeah. it's happening right now. What are you, what are your thoughts on that? It's fun to live in the future, right? You know, it, it's fun to have these incredible tools that felt like toys at first and then enabled vast amounts of money to be um, redistributed to people that wouldn't have had that opportunity. And I see that creatively as a possibility, just as again, just as it happened in music, you know, Billie Eilish and Phineas are making albums in their bedroom. And that was not a thing that, that could have happened. Um, and that would have been several hundred thousand dollars at a studio in Topanga Canyon or wherever, you know, 
And now that's, that's potentially going to happen to film and television. And so, like I was saying, it is, it is a bit of a dicey conversation because mm -hmm. yeah, the, the, the pipeline as it exists is going to be dismantled to some degree, and it's going to have to be replaced so that it doesn't completely collapse. But some of the manual labor involved in lining up, let's say footage for an editor or that kind of thing could be so streamlined and it would ultimately save production so much cost let's say in pre-production and post-production that when you're on the set, you might have more time to play because the, there's more money for that part of the, of the production. So I just don't think people are seeing it that way yet. Um, and, but the artists I think might be seeing it in terms of, look, I, I made a, a, a pitch deck for a television show using a combination of existing images and mid journey. And so it feels way more like what I want it to feel like, and that really right there is the key concept that it's creating a, a more sort of immediate connection between your imagination and the product for less money. Mm -hmm. And so that creates empathy and that creates connection between the creator and the audience and collaborators as well. I mean, what is the biggest um, sort of speed bump in any production? It, it, it's getting your collaborators to see your vision and to then allow them to weigh in on your vision. So AI to me, well, here's my vision. There it is. I, I created it on Midjourney. This is what I want it to look like. There are so many writers and art and directors that I know that are not at all visual artists. And so, and 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 so many artists are not writers. You know, so it, it's 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 going to be incredible in that way for empowering people that have very limited resources to create incredible works of art. And of course, that's going to be a threat to the to the existing, you know, the existing framework. Um, and it's going to be a, a growth, like a, a, a growing learning curve here in Hollywood. But ultimately, I think it's going to create, like you said, some sort of serendipity that people haven't really expected before. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, I'm going on a stream here, but I also think on the other hand, there is always um, a, a sort of pendulum pushback to these advances. So if you look at, for instance, the rise of uh, drum loops and Napster, it kind of all of a sudden there was this rebirth of Americana and bluegrass and people wanting to hear music that's not on a click track. And there's room for both. I mean, I've seen Calvin Harris and I've seen the sort of literal cathedral of people worshiping at, at, at his concerts. And I went to, you know, um, James Taylor a few months ago and that band is the opposite and, and it's just as en enchanting and entrancing and it's just as meaningful i think and it, it's not a sort of zero-sum pie i think there's room for all of that mm. um and so i really think like look at you know the rise of cgi in the early 2000s gave the rise to dogma 95. that's the the, the those filmmakers in europe wanted to no lights <laughs> no no makeup yeah. let's make it look as natural as it can in response to this synthetic um look that's sort of rising up in Hollywood. So I think in AI, we could have music that sounds like a computer or it could sound exactly like the Beatles or whatever you want it to be. And, and that'll appeal to some people. And that will absolutely not appeal to other people who will push back and will want more of a real human experience. And I, I truly do believe there's going to be room for all of that. Mm. It's so interesting. I would love to go further into that train of thought and we can go pure, mm. pure spe speculation because nobody has the answer to the question I'm about to ask. But um, uh, uh, the, so once 
you know, I, if I just got access to Dolly three inside of my chat GPT, uh, mm. I didn't like, I hated mid journey because it was stuck inside of discord and discord is just like, I feel like my soul <laughs> dies. Maybe it's just my, my attention dies every time that I go into that piece of software, yeah. but I just, I, I, I do not like it. Uh, and so now <laughs> it's within chat GPT. And so I'm able to rapidly create, um, art. And mm. so I'm, I'm noticing that at my own, you know, there's this thing called the hedonic tre treadmill where we, we just adapt to every, anything and very quickly we adapt. And so now I'm adapted to making pieces of art and I've never been visu a visual person. I've never been an artist, never considered myself a designer. And here I am just like creating, you know, out of my fingertips, just like these beautiful pieces of art that, you know, a year ago yeah. today, I would have been like, that's just not possible. That won't be possible. There's no, no way that's happening. And here I am just creating like this. And so, that's cool. and, and, but that's going to, you know, like already over the past 10 years, we've already generated, you know, listicles and blog posts and, um, and artists have collaborated to start, you know, the, because the internet, it, it all just comes out so quickly, like even really good arts, human made, it comes out. So we've already started to sort of devalue it in, in general. It's, it's already been such a large part of our, our daily visual stimuli. Um, I'd, I'd like to hear what you think about is going to happen in terms of like, okay, so we have people who are generating art. Now it's limitless. Now anybody can generate mm -hmm. tons and tons of art. Um, but then there's also going to be people who really desire the human, the human element inside of that. Mm -hmm. What do you think that that is going to look like with that human and artist, uh, that human authenticity? Like, do you see any ways that we can actually like that are going to appear in terms of like really valuing that human authenticity within art? Yeah, I think that's an, a huge, huge key to this. By the way, first of all, I think it's super cool that you're doing art. You're, you're living that Da Vinci test that Francis Pedraza talks about. Instead of the Turing test, let's make every human like Da Vinci. And you've taken your huge leap into visual arts. So congratulations to you. That's super, super cool. Um, and then to get to what you're asking, um, I've already kind of been living this as an actor because in the last 25 years, uh, as I've been doing it, you have the rise of social media, YouTube, mm. and TikTok, mm. where everybody everybody thinks that they're an actor, um, and everyone thinks they're a professional comedian. Yes. Yes. And you know what? A lot of people are very funny, and and it's all awesome. It's all awesome. But it makes my job look like I'm we're devalued. not doing anything. Yeah. It's devalued. Yeah. yeah. And so, and it has literally been devalued. I've watched my union give concessions, unfortunately, and that have been pretty unfortunate. But that's kind of where the market goes, and you you just gotta keep going where it's going. But having said all this, I'm still doing it. I'm still working. Uh, and I, I know that my expertise and my skill are meant to make this look invisible. It's meant to make it look what I like the invisible baseball game. It, it's a lot, again, like sports, they make that look really easy. Hitting a baseball is incredibly hard. I mean, three out of 10 times, if you're the best in the world. And so as an actor, if I book one out of 60, you're, you're a working actor, one out of 60 auditions. That's, they call that failure. That's not failure. That's the process. Mm. And so you have to just gird yourself to that and say, well, I have to keep working on my technique and my, my, so you've got the talent, you've got the technique and you've got the hard work and you have mm. to put in all three in order to really, really make it look invisible, to make it look effortless. That's my job is to make this look like it's happening in real time, totally naturally, uh, so that it connects to your heart. Right. And that's what writers are supposed to do. We're supposed to write dialogue or whatever prose, whatever you write that connects with you and feels effortless in a way. And so, wow, that looks easy. I can do that. And a lot of people can't. So I think, you know, what's going to happen is that hopefully there will be 
and I kind of already see it happening as, as television people start doing theater, uh, as we start to have, we, we continue to have movie stars that are, you know, um, classically trained actors, uh, like Adam Driver is somebody that I love, uh, who, who know what the, what the skill involves, what the job involves, and they continue to do it. And I really do think that people can feel it. If they can't necessarily say, well, that was a great delivery of the line, or wow, I'm, I'm not sure I really like the blocking and that's, no, 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 they don't, need, they don't need to know the inside baseball. They just need to feel it. That's not your job to know how it's done as an audience member. And the art belongs to you. We're always in service to the audience. So again, I totally do think there will be people that need to have that level of skill involved, mm. you know, in order to feel a deeper level. I mean, you know, it. even seeing a DJ set, somebody who really shapes it and you're riding on that sort of three hour journey. Um, it, it, there's so many different rhythms of how that can happen. So many different delivery systems for how that can happen. And, and there are people that are, are, are going to continue to really, to really know how to do that beautifully. I mean, look, there's still opera singers there. Are, I went to the Hollywood bowl and I saw Joe Hisaishi, who does all of the music for Studio Ghibli, and it, it was like, oh my God, my daughter is getting to see a live orchestra. That still happens, thank God. But it's going to be difficult again, I think. It's going to be difficult economically. How do we, uh, how do we show that we value the arts by giving artists mm -hmm. a living wage and a life? And if we don't give them that, then how are we going to have artists in the future? How are we going to have these experts who are trained in these arts if we don't give them a living and a life? and a livelihood, you know, like there are still calligraphers, right? There are still watercolor painters and it, it, there should be, this should all keep expanding outward, but we can't all just say everyone should, should abandon being an English major and go into engineering and mathematics. We, we still need all of this. And hopefully I'm seeing it working in invisible. The value is such a surprise in the liberal arts and the generalist notion is potentially coming back. I mean, it, it is heartening. I'm, I'm nervous because I'm, I'm obviously a believer, but I'm having it in my ear every day in Hollywood that people are just really against it or terrified mm -hmm. of it. So, yeah, you know, but the, the toothpaste is out of the tube and I just want to see how we can use it uh, and make room for everybody to continue to do in, to some degree what they've been doing. Mm -hmm. um, but there are going to be artisans along the pipeline that are going to, to, to sort of just fade out. And that's kind of, if you zoom out in history, that's been happening forever. Yeah. And it goes back and forth. And I think I'd, I'd be curious to, if you know anything about the history of the arts in general, like how much it's happened over history. Cause I, I get the impression that the arts, particularly before maybe like 1700 or 1800, probably around 1800 with the industrial revolution, like the arts were probably not a great way to make money. Do you, do you know if that, if like, I, I, yeah. I don't, I don't yeah, know, yeah. but, but I, it... but I imagine that the system was just inherently different that it, you know, if you don't, you didn't have, capitalism as it exists now i mean you you just have a different system of patronage and, and some other way of, exactly okay yeah 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 because yeah. yeah, it was it was patronage for at least a lot of the arts so i know that that's at least how you know da vinci and all of them got started is they just had patrons and it might sort mm -hmm. of return return to that as well um oh there's a great question i had uh the invisible humanities piece the 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 fact that you feel kind of at home and invisible uh, because they put such a high value on the arts is actually like very, very rare. It's the only reason I'm there as well too. Like, or I'm here because mm. 
there's so few companies that do that. Like most yeah, companies wow. you go and that's and that and that reflects inside of what I was talking about earlier, which is that the idea was to automate it all away. So we need STEM, STEM, STEM. We need, uh, you know, like the only sciences, only the hard math, only the hardcore things. Um, uh, and a lot of a lot of people forget that a lot of those people who are in STEM really, really value a lot of the arts as well. Like it's not like they they disappear, but inside of the companies, the pressure is just like, oh, that's but that's meaningless. Like that's not really right. to, this, to the bottom that's line. Your hobby, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, your hobby. Go go do those things outside of work and stuff. But <laughs> right. in invisible, it's like it's almost too much. Like with all these groups with like philosophers <laughs> like Zeno, uh, I'm seeing it's incredible. You know, yeah, I'm seeing Zohar post these these photos of like Zeno in the subway or something like that, and it's just oh like, god, it's uh, awesome. I'm like yeah. wow, or we, he's creating social media that might be good for you. I really yes, do think exactly. it is. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it, it, it's true. I actually know some tech people. My brother's been in the Silicon Valley world for for my for 30 years now, and he's. Uh, He's in venture capital and he was an English major too, which I love. And he's also a killer guitarist and we've played together. I'm a drummer and, and we've played together a ton. Um, and we just sort of took different paths. Right. And now it's almost like we're converging back together, which is hilarious. Yeah. Um, but, but it is, um, the well-rounded people that he's, I've introduced, he's introduced me to over the years. Whenever I visit him, he lives in the Bay area. Um, I love talking to his friends and it, and it feels mutual. I, I, I love it. I mean, they're, they're passionate about music. They're passionate about the arts, and it's cool to see that this window is opening for each other mm. into each other's worlds. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't realize. Obviously, I was so naive coming into Invisible. I didn't understand that other companies aren't this way. Uh, and I was first and foremost. The funny thing is, even the job listing I thought was beautifully written. I'm like, wow, I like the prose of this. <laughs> you know, as somebody who reads novels and has studied how this ticks, this is a really well written job posting. <laughs> so first and foremost, I thought that was great. Kudos to whoever wrote that because it appealed to me from my point of view. And I mean, that's going to appeal to, if it, appeal, if it appealed to me, I'm sure it'll, it'll appeal to tons of other artists who would sense even from that piece of prose that this company is slightly different, um, which is very cool. That's very, very cool. And how, can we go more into how you found Invisible and, and like, um, did it, was it just like a random job description that you were looking for or did it, is there any sort of story behind how you found Invisible? Well, yeah, I mean, I saw the strikes here in Hollywood happening probably, you know, a mile away mm -hmm. and I knew that was going to happen. And luckily, um, my union worked out a different contract for the commercial side of things. And I've done a lot of commercials over the years, and that's been sort of my day job. Basically, I'm always aiming at TV and film, but then the commercials come along and it's wow, that's a great day of work. And it creates income for my family for the year. You string along a few of those in a year, then you're good and you have health insurance and whatnot. But watching that, watching the climate change, so to speak, here in Hollywood in terms of um, the union sort of losing ground and then also the strikes happening, I, it really push came to shove and I, I had to get on it and really say, I, I have to get a day job. I've been really fortunate enough that I haven't had one um, more or less in the last 25 years or so. I've been supporting myself as an actor and really, really proud of that. Um, but this was like, okay, so where do I put my... Um, my soft skills uh, and my educational background, because I just didn't think that my work background would potentially be um, applicable. Where can I plug in all these other things that I've had in my pocket for a while? Um, and I just sort of got on LinkedIn, which I've just randomly been on for a while, but never thought of it as as much of a tool for an actor. Um, but I did create the sort of look of, of my LinkedIn page and started poking around and reconnecting with people from college and reconnecting with other actors that had pivoted out of acting. So what are you doing? How are you putting it? Um, the, the, 
the real incredible um, catalyst was a buddy of mine from Blue Man Group. I did Blue Man Group uh, a while ago. I did it for six years. And one of the one of the guys I was I was hired with, uh, Matt, who was terrific and um, a genius, and he uh, he's sort of been doing Blue Man ever since. I left it 17 years ago, and he's been doing it for for 20 years. And I think he's sort of moving away from it. And he started to take courses in UX and UI. And he said, "Well, I've been in, on stage for 20 years doing U, UI every night. You know, uh-huh. I'm on stage <laughs> interfacing with the audience." And I thought that was brilliant. I thought that was so creative and so beautiful and seeing that, that connectivity between those two things. And that empowered me and made me sort of take a deep breath and say, okay, I've been in a bit of a bubble with my own skills and my own awareness of how that can apply. So let's just sort of take it easy and, and get going and get out there. And my wife right now is in graduate school, getting a degree in psychology. Again, she's been acting since she was 19 years old and she's pivoting away from acting. And so we looked at her resume and, and put it all together. And, and so I said, well, I might as well do mine. And so then I got on LinkedIn with my, my new resume and my new cover letter. And I said, wow, this is so sh- surprisingly interesting. <laughs> I was surprisingly stimulated by that little search. And, um, and Invisible was right there. It was, it was one of those things. I said, let's start with writing. Where do they need writers? Where do they need? Because I've been writing for a while. And that, then it popped up. And every, everywhere along the, the, the onboarding process was very much, we're encouraging you, Invisible was encouraging me to really be me. Um, really let your, your freak flag fly and, and be as creative as you want uh, and being encouraged to do that. And so I found that to be refreshing. Um, and to be totally frank, I found it really refreshing to be working with much younger people. I thought they're, they're awesome. I, I'm, I'm working amongst a group of geniuses. I, I'm astonished by what people are doing and what, what led them here. And I feel humbled by that um, and grateful for that. So yeah, that, that was, it was born out of necessity. Uh, and then again, the sort of uh, hang on tightly, let go lightly. I had an idea of what this would be and then I really had to let it go. Uh, as I was sort of delightfully surprised by what it's turned out to be. Very interesting. Um, okay. Uh, so fascinating to hear about that. Fascinating to hear about why they specifically needed writers and stuff, which goes back to that point we started out with, which about creativity and like how mm. creativity is rather than these algorithms. Although the programmers need to have those, that knowledge in order to help you guys do your job, apparently. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I would love to, you know, cause it's so recent, uh, and we've, you've, we've been talking about it. We've been, uh, talking about the strike and everything can, for our listeners who don't understand, can you give more of like what's happening, what's happened with the strike? Cause I know that it did, it did end recently. Right. Um, well, the right, the writer strike ended, um, I don't know by the time this airs, if the, if the actor strike will be ongoing, but uh, the directors uh, and the writers and the actors, the three different unions, went on strike simultaneously, which I don't know if that's ever happened or if that's happened in the last, I don't know, 50 years, but it is a major inflection point here. And I'd say that um, as I watched Silicon Valley and the streamers come to Hollywood, um, it it inherently changed the culture of this town and the business model was completely upended. So uh, for people that don't know the business model of Hollywood, it used to be built on uh, selling a product. You would, you would have a television show that would go for a certain number of, of episodes and then be syndicated um, to other networks and then globally. And then 
everyone involved in that would make residuals for the rest of their lives and have an incredible income. So you, you saw that peak really in the 1990s and the perfect mm -hmm. examples are Friends and, and, and Frasier and yeah. Seinfeld. Is, yeah, yeah, you have Seinfeld money, right? Yeah. So, uh, but then when the streamers came to town, it was based on a subscriber growth and yeah. that was just a completely different thing. So if you're growing in that way, what exactly are the metrics for measuring success? Who's watching? How is that translating to money? Um, what is the product that you're selling? And as physical, as that happened, physical media slowly disappeared or became niche, you know? And again, funny because then also weirdly vinyl came back, that, that, but that's related to music. But I think there's always some kind of counterbalance. Anyway, back to Hollywood. Um, so people I thought became kind of uh, enamored with the, with the hyper growth of streamers. Uh, they're throwing a lot of money at um, making a lot of content. Um, and so it's called peak TV and you have these incredibly ornate television shows with gigantic budgets. It starts to look and feel like big budget film mm -hmm. and it's drawing a lot of prestige and a lot of subscribers to these streamers. But then all of a sudden the bubble starts to wobble, you know, if not burst to saying, well, how do we monetize this? Uh, and I think it started to happen when they started to notice that the, the subscriber numbers were stagnating somewhat. It was probably, I think last year or the year before. Um, and also I can speak to this firsthand, you know, I was on a show on a streamer and the income is just much, much lower than it would be if you were on a network television show, especially in the long term with residuals. So from the actor's point of view, it becomes again, I can do this job. This is great. I have income for these three years that we're doing this show, then it's over and the residuals are not enough to float me to the next gig. So what's the livable income there? And what is, what is my equity in the creation I've made for, for the, for the streaming companies and how is that exactly fair? Uh, and I think that's the heart of the issue for me was more about, um, revenue sharing in terms of viewers and trying to pry open the, the data vault to look at who's watching the show. And that's still not quite going to happen. And then the other concern in the background was AI, which became a really loud concern. Um, as AI is replacing voiceover actors, AI is replacing background actors. Um, and so those revenue streams are just disappearing for those performers. And the writers became terrified because, you know, if you were trying to get a job writing for The Simpsons, for, for instance, you would have to write a spec script of The Simpsons where you write your version of what you think is the ideal Simpsons episode. But what if you fed that into ChatGPT? It could spit it out. It could take, it could aggregate every existing episode of the Simpsons and then and write it perfectly. So it's sort of an existential terror moment, the future shock moment of saying, wow, I don't understand even how this works, but I know it's a threat to me. Mm -hmm. So that's how a lot of artists in this town were, were sort of looking at this. And then, and then it sort of, instead of broke, you know, so now it's a, it's a matter of saying, um, how much do you value what we create? and you being the, the streamers and the producers, but not the independent producers. Producers is not really an accurate um, depiction because real film producers are almost like artists themselves where they mm. pull together the talent, they don't get paid up front. But when we say the AMPTP, which is the, the group that's being protested against right now, or struck against rather, they are the corporate producers, the, the executive producers. So how much do you value the content that your artists are making? And that's kind of it. I mean, it's, that's a huge broad strokes look at it, but um, what do you value and how do we get paid for it? Uh, and again, you look at TikTok, no one's getting really paid for their content there. So why should we pay some actor 
on a show. So, and, and, and that's another thing too, is I think the television networks and the streamers are, are well aware that the eyeballs are going to other things. The people aren't watching film and television as they used to. And so it's going to have to naturally evolve. Mm-hmm. And, you know, film has only been around for over a over hundred years at this point. So if you zoom out again in history, take a much longer look at culture. Of course, it's going to have to change. And I love film. I mean, I love television, but to say that that's going to be the only thing that Hollywood makes mm-hmm. is, you know, it's, that's not realistic to me. So I'd love for there to be room for all of it, like I said before, and I truly believe that there is, but what is the, what's the income and what's the support for people there uh, for having a community and a family and that kind of thing. You know, and there's also the the uh, so what you you just painted a very uh, good picture of the overall thing. I, I'd I'd love to hear what what you think the answer is. It seems it seems like a, a difficult thing about how to actually change this system in a way, influence the system in a way that it does actually value the the artistic work of creators. Um, so I'd love mm-hmm. to hear from from your, your end as well. But then there's a few other things that I that I w- was thinking about as you were talking about Facebook just recently released a product where they're now creating AI, uh, uh, AI images of people um, and AI uh, there for some reason they instead of calling it Katie Jenner or I'm not very good at pop culture, but but uh, right. uh, um, w- 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 instead of calling it the celebrity, they actually gave it a new name. That's not mm-hmm. the celebrity's name and attached to it at all. And 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 they they got the celebrity to to um, give them the license to create this. And then there's now a bot in there that looks and sounds like that. The the and right. you can imagine this going into video as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and but that has almost no interest for me uh, <laughs> uh, personally. I, I and I know that I'm not a representative sample of the rest of the population. Um, but for me, like. And and you talked about scre- streaming, and you talked about that kind of authenticity. We've talked about the, a lot here. And for me, the last ten, uh, no, the last four years have just been a total desert of of content. Like I have found no good movies, no good films, like very very little. Um, <laughs> and and it, and it feels related to what you're talking about about how this this value of these of these things is no longer within the realm of the interest of the people who are kind of creating these things, because it's all about like, how do we just get this stuff out there and, and kind of like niche it down, do another superhero, um, yep. superhero, uh, what do you call it? Um, sequel Marvel and stuff movie. like that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. But it, but it feels like, you know, we're in the, we're in a dark age right now. It feels in terms of our arts, we're in a little bit of a dark age. And like, actually, this is a good question for you is like, can you, and this is a hard question, uh, uh, <laughs> can you uh, describe your personal vision of how the uh of what a golden age will look like and what mm-hmm. a dark age will look like um yeah like yeah what are the two what are the big differences between your personal golden age and what you're like if we if ai somehow sparked a new golden age what would that look like right if ai actually um, sparked a, a, a dark age <laughs> what would that look like well let's do the doom scenario first so that we end it on a positive thing so the doom scenario to me is where um it's completely the arts are completely devalued no one can make a living from it. So if you were to disconnect the revenue from the arts, then that trickles all the way down. And think about it, if ChatGPT replaces all writers, there's no incentive to train writers. So there's no incentive to teach writers and there's no incentive to read at all. So that's a nightmare to me, like a total, total nightmare. Um, and so I'm heartened to see what Zohar is doing in, in reconnecting us to the classics and taking everybody back to knowledge that predates all of this, which I think is the perfect antidote to that. 
And in terms of performance, I think it, it, the nightmare scenario is again, that nobody has any way of having any kind of livelihood and no kind of dignity. And, and therefore it becomes the realm of either ultra rich kids, uh, and that becomes a monoculture there, or it becomes the realm of, uh, of, of totally subsidized by corporate interests and therefore the art can't be free to express itself entirely. So that's not even the worst case scenario. And the worst case scenario is where it's just completely generated by um, corporate people feeding things into AI, which I just think is completely not the way to go. Because I'm seeing again, doing fine tuning for, for large language models that you, you need the experts in this to, to wield that wand. If it we're the wizard, that's the wand. You really do need the experts who have lived this and not just studied it, but lived it and practiced it in order to, to wield it um, effectively in order to create, again, a connection between the artist and the, uh, the audience to create empathy. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the golden age to me is where it creates, um, let's say two major important outcomes. One, um, a, a thriving middle class of, act, of, of artists, a thriving middle class, not necessarily just get rich and hit it big and get all your bling. It's to say, I just want to live and I want to support my family by doing this only. I want to write, I want to paint, I want to do sculpture, maybe digital sculpture in the metaverse. I want to do theater. I want to create this thing and not have to have a side hustle and two other jobs in order to put food on my table and have healthcare. Um, and I think that AI could potentially do that. I mean, but it's, it's a willingness of the owners of this technology to, to share a bit more of the revenue by, and I think that's going to have to happen only by seeing the value in what the artists are bringing. Um, I did a thought experiment with some, with some buddies saying, look, imagine in the future, you're an, a theater actor and you are hired to do a Broadway show and you're doing a six week run live in New York or wherever um, of a play. And on one weekend, there's no audience, but instead you're all hooked up to uh, data capture and, and you have all this equipment on you capturing your performance and all the data of your performance. So you spend a full weekend doing several run throughs of the show start to finish and creating um a digital performance now imagine feeding that into an ai that can recreate you and recreate your performance and there instead of your likeness it's recreating your performance of this character mm -hmm. which we already live in if you really think about everyone who's ever been scanned in to become an, a star wars action figure they've already given their likeness away in that way so imagine you're an actor you've given you've created an avatar of your performance in um, the Iceman cometh uh and now they're going to launch once the live show ends, let's say you're going to launch uh, an AI perform uh, an AI run mm. of the Iceman cometh in the metaverse with your hyper re hyper realistic AI avatar doing that performance. Let's say the producers bring you in to fine tune your performance. How cool would that be to say mm -hmm. you're looking at what the AI is doing and you're circling problems saying, nope, that's not accurate. That's a hallucination. Nope, that's that's the bot taking a little bit of, of liberty with my performance. So you spend some time fine tuning your performance and then it is you. But night after night in the metaverse, audiences could be watching a new performance because it would be AI generated. It wouldn't be just a recording of your performance. I think that's super, super cool. And then the actor who created the performance and fine tuned the performance could get revenue on that performance as it runs in perpetuity, who knows? 
Um, and you're forever young there too, which is a, a Hollywood dream for a lot of people doing Botox here, right? Yeah. Uh, so, but I think to me that that is a way to say, I'm going to create something new and be able to have various revenue streams from what I've created in order to support my family and my community and be able to continue to do my art. I mean, speaking from experience, when you're loose and you're confident and you've hit a run, you, you get the confidence to keep going. I mean, the Beatles couldn't have made Sgt. Pepper without really kicking ass in the first few albums and be given the permission to create in that way. So I think that would be amazing to watch artists get that kind of confidence and that kind of support um, and use these tools to help make that happen. Hmm. Great. So we got a couple minutes left um, and what I'm about to say may not be able to be all within a couple minutes, but uh, we'll, we'll yeah. try to do the best. Uh, so like <laughs> go, going into that world, it's just so crazy because it's all, you know, like if we look at what happened to Napster and then we look at what happened mm. to streaming music and then we look at what happened to the uh, record labels um, reaction to that streaming music. Uh, and then now we are where we are now, where Spotify really doesn't give that good of a, a good of an income, and and mm -hmm. it seems like this, a similar thing happened to 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 Netflix as well. And it feels like there's, and but we're it feels like we're in that dark age that I was talking about. That where I write yeah. in a dark age. I'm I'm a fundamental believer that AI will lead to a golden age. Although I am also an optimist, so I have been wrong. <laughs> about ten years ago, I was I was very wrong when I when I because I was optimistic about the last ten years as well, and yeah. that was that from from my understanding is clearly not didn't 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 happen the way that I was thinking. But but I am actually optimistic that this new thing and it's something about the generative AI. I do believe will make such a large change to our structures that other things that sustainable business models could actually be created that we we don't understand yet because we mm -hmm. were just at the very beginning of this thing and and it was very interesting to hear you talk about that of in the metaverse and it's it, it all does seem to come down to licensing and new mm -hmm. business models that that'll need to be created in 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 um in reaction to a lot of the things that are going to be happening just a couple minutes you have any thoughts on that yeah, I mean, first of all, thank God that the music industry went through that, because I think that is definitely some kind of uh, model for what is potentially happening right now with with Hollywood. And it, it and so that it accelerates the the urgent need to get on that licensing right now. I think that's sort of step one. And I'm not the only one saying that. I mean, there's a lot of people saying, OK, you're going to replace background artists. That that seems like a bummer, but an inevitability. Um, so we have to protect the performances. You also have to go mm. into the back catalog and protect all the past performances Ooh. as well. I mean, that's a that's a big deal. And that's a big sticking point for many people in Hollywood because Hollywood, as, as, um, as sort of interested in new technology as, as it is, it also is a very nostalgic and, and traditional town, surprisingly so, and has reverence as it should for mm. it, its creations mm. in the past. Mm. And and so you have to go back and, and protect the, the performances of artists who are, who are deceased or artists that are, are no longer making whatever you just have to go back and create that you have to protect that those creations as well um, and we're seeing already lawsuits with comedians and writers suing uh open ai for for feeding it their material so we're going to see a bit more of that i think and so yeah I, I think we are a bit in the in the dark ages of of this and it's creating a lot of um uh regurgitated culture but what i see as a hopeful sort of takeaway is um the pull toward live experience mm. and human experience. Mm. Uh, again, I'm, I'm very in love with the music world. I'm still feel like I'm part of it, even though I'm probably really not. But it's like you if you support a band, you have to go buy their merch. You have to go to the concert. You have to buy a T-shirt. You become a fan. You become like a patron. 
and it be, and it becomes a, a more direct relationship with that artist. Um, I know people that have been on television that um, used to sort of completely look down on the notion of going and signing autographs and taking pictures for money. Now everybody does that, everyone, and it is a really great alternate um, revenue stream. You know, look at Cameo. There's a more direct relationship between the artist and and the and the audience for better or for worse because you can't really keep the illusion of any character if they're just seeing you at home right <laughs> but, but but again like imagine explaining web 2.0 to somebody in the 1990s you know that that's kind of where we're at where i it is a wait and see we can build the, the infrastructure to protect ourselves at this point and we've learned that lesson from artists you know look at jazz artists look at classical artists they've been pretty gutted by uh by the streaming wars mm. um and that's difficult that's really really difficult but luckily they're they're persevering and and they're better than ever. I mean, I'm also watching kids learn a lot younger how to play. I mean, my own daughter is doing things that and she's seven and she's doing things I didn't do till I was 13 because, you know, YouTube and, and friends and, and literal mentors in the community that are just teaching these kids certain chops, wow. uh, how to do these things way younger. So that, you know, we're gonna have some 13 year old make an Avengers movie. With There's a whole other podcast right there. Wow, that's really <laughs> that. Whoa. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. If anybody uh, found uh, found what you're saying interesting, how can they connect with you further? Um, I'm on Instagram. Look for me, Andrew. Uh, I don't know. I'm not much of a social media guy. I should be, but it's Andrew Burlinson. Uh, find me on Instagram. That's kind of where I'm active. Or find me on LinkedIn. Great. Thank you so much. My pleasure, man. Thank you. Hey, thanks for tuning in to Plain Sight, presented by Invisible. If you liked what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button and consider sharing with your network. And if you're interested in learning more about how Invisible helps teams cut costs and scale, visit our website at invisible.co. See you next time.